Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. Sola dosis facit venenum is a quote by Paracelsus, which in English translates to the dose makes the poison. So we will pick up where we stopped in our last episode. In today's episode of the podcast, we will continue on the topic of toxicology in the ICU. In our previous episode, part one, we covered the general approach to treatment of poisoned patients. In today's episode, part two, we will dive deeper into the management of specific toxins. We can't cover every potential toxin in one episode, so we will make a deliberate choice to focus on four groups of potential toxins, alcohols, analgesics, cardiovascular drugs, and psychotropic drugs. Our guest is again Dr. Gerald Lakin. Dr. Lakin is currently the Director of Medical Toxicology at North Shore University Health System Omega, which includes several hospitals in Illinois. He is Associate Director of the Toxicon Consortium based at John H. Stronger Jr. Hospital of Cook County in Chicago. In addition, he is a Clinical Professor of Medicine at the Pritzker School of Medicine, University of Chicago, and Professor of Medicine and Pharmacology at Rush Medical College. Dr. Lakin has published extensively in the field of toxicology. Jerry, welcome back to Critical Matters. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So in the first episode of this two-part uh, two series, we covered a lot of the general management and uh, overview of the approach to the poison patients. Today, I, I wanted to dive a little bit more into some specific toxins that clinicians might encounter in, in the ICU and talk about the nuances of treating these specific toxins. You had mentioned in our last episode that there is very, very little in terms of specific antidotes that are used in common practice, and a lot of it is recognizing the toxin and providing the adequate supportive care. But I would like to start maybe with the alcohols and maybe start by asking you, Jerry, um, what are the most common intoxications or most common toxicities that we see with different alcohols and start diving into each one of these categories? Certainly. Well, the toxic alcohols are considered primarily um, three of them, ethylene glycol, methyl alcohol or methanol, or, and isopropyl alcohol. Um, we're not going to consider ethyl alcohol or ethanol in this discussion. Um, pro, isopropyl alcohol typically does not give you an acidosis, metabolic acidosis, and therefore it does not re, uh, require any um, adjunctive therapy for metabolic acidosis. It is converted to acetone, and as being converted to acetone, it's pretty much eliminated. It can cause central nervous system depression at very high acetone levels, but outside of that, there's very little metabolic consequence to it. So, um, essentially the toxic alcohols that we will discuss is ethylene glycol and methanol. It only takes about one cc per kilogram of these substances to cause toxicity. And the toxicity is one of metabolic acidosis. Of course, methanol, um, the problem is with regarding uh, blindness, along with the metabolic acidosis and with ethylene glycol, it's uh, kidney failure or uh, renal insufficiency due to the production of oxalates, oxalic acid, glycolic acid, and the like. Um, and so those are the major sequelae 
of ethylene glycol and methanol. So, so before we, we, we talk a little bit more about the treatment, I, had, I do have a, a one quick question on isopropyl alcohol. So as you said, suspected, I guess, when we have a history of somebody using a substance that might have it uh, with the right clinical findings, or when you don't have an increased annual gap metabolic acidosis, but you do see an osmolar gap. Is that correct? Yes, you see an osmolar gap with all three. The largest osmolar gap is with methyl alcohol or methanol. Okay. Um, ethylene glycol and isopropyl alcohol can produce an osmolar gap, but with isopropyl alcohol, there's no metabolic acidosis. And isopropyl uh, alcohol is found, is that rubbing alcohol, Jerry, usually? Yes, it is usually rubbing alcohol um, in a very concentrated uh, uh, amount. Um, and the usual scenario is we see it in patients who have a history of alcohol abuse and need an alcohol substitute and believe this is one. We also see it in uh, toddlers who may ingest it accidentally. Okay. And what about ethylene glycol and methanol? What's the usual clinical presentation? Where do people find these alcohols in terms of, of, of getting uh, intoxicated with them? Well, typically they're in uh, antifreeze as far as ethylene glycol goes. Uh, methanol has been found in certain types of uh, gas products uh, for, used for recreation, such as model cars, and also windshield wiper fluids um, overall, and uh, it's used in window washing fluids as like, as, as kind of an antifreeze substance. So those are the typical situations um, that one sees uh, the toxic alcohols, particularly methanol and ethylene glycols. And is one of these uh, uh, found in bootleg liquors? Bootleg liquors typically had methanol. Um, one had to decant the top 10% of bootleg liquors um, or else they had methanol poisoning. And actually, methanol poisoning was big during the Prohibition area where bootleg liquors and, um, were used quite a bit um, in the sense there were hundreds of cases in the 1920s of uh, methanol poisoning and blindness in New York City alone due to bootleg liquor. So in patients who come with altered mental status, uh, and as we mentioned in episode one, you find an increased osmolar gap, um, you should start thinking about these as potential uh, toxic uh, um, in, in, in intakes. Are there other clinical findings that might be uh, of interest or that might point you in this direction? Well, the metabolic acidosis um, is, is usually seen quite pronounced on presentation of these individuals. Um, in the sense. Now, with ethylene glycol, um, essentially, w one sees an intoxication. To a certain extent, CNS depression, and that's true with uh, methanol, uh, too. Nystagmus is often seen with these, or ataxia. Nausea and vomiting are very common with acute ingestions. Uh, but at, with uh, severe intoxicity, one can see the increased central nervous system depression and eventually coma, hypotonia, uh, hyporeflexia, probably due to the cerebral edema that can result from either methanol or ethylene glycol. And in terms of, uh, a, of, 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 of danger, I mean, obviously, uh, untreated and unrecognized, these can potentially be uh, very, very uh, lethal, but also cause significant permanent damage, correct? Yes, uh, permanent injury to the kidneys for ethylene glycol, and about third, one-third of the cases, one will develop permanent blindness in terms of methanol. So are there any cases, uh, Jerry, where you might have a normal osmolar gap or anion gap and have a significant toxicity with one of these alcohols? Certainly. Um, actually, the osmolar gap is seen early um, as these uh, 
metabolic byproducts are being metabolized uh, and formed, and they form the acidosis. So the acidosis is probably a little bit later function that is seen, and it's an anion gap acidosis. Uh, the serum uh, CO2 usually goes straight down to virtually undetectable after several hours, but that may not be seen um, after uh, quite a few hours of ingestion. First is seen the osmo gap, and then the anion gap acidosis results. And I think that this is an important point because we obviously always talk about uh, uh, the calculation of these gaps, but a normal osmolar gap does not rule out a life-threatening intoxication with ethylene glycol or methanol, right? Especially in view of an acidosis, metabolic acidosis that is increasing because the metabolites may have already been formed and the parent compound may not be present in very large amounts. So once you uh, you suspect or maybe identified, and, and, many, and many times clinically you might have the history that somebody took antifreeze, and uh, obviously makes I mean uh, your job a lot easier. But once you've suspected uh, uh, that you have uh, an ethylene glycol or methanol intoxication, what's the next step in terms of workout? What would be the next things that you would order, and how would you approach the treatment? Well, I would approach the treatment. Um, I would obtain in both cases a metabolic panel. Uh, especially calcium for ethylene glycol because hypocalcemia can occur um, overall. Um, I would try to obtain a serum osmolality. Um, I would try to obtain an ethylene glycol and methanol concentration, but I realize that that may not be uh, accessible very early. Um, arterial blood gases should be obtained. Urine analysis, especially looking for calcium oxalate crystals for ethylene glycol or hematuria or proteinuria, uh, can be commonly seen. So that would be the primary workup, our laboratory workup for uh, these substances uh, because these are metabolic poisons. And in terms of getting uh, precise levels, is that something that most hospitals can do and is that a rapid or slow turnaround? It's a pretty slow turnaround. Most hospitals don't have access to uh, ethylene glycol or methanol levels um, within the hospital. They probably have, they do have access to serum osmolality. And certainly, certainly, um, if your serum osmolality is quite elevated, and that being with normal electrolytes in the th in the 300s, in the upper 300s or mid 300s, that could be a clue that there is uh, ethylene glycol or methanol involved. Um, and so, from that aspect, serum osmolality would be key. Ethylene glycol or methanol levels would be confirmatory. And in terms of uh, approachment to treatment, as you mentioned, I mean, two of the most uh, uh, feared complications would be, I guess, permanent renal failure and blindness uh, with methanol. What What are the, the next steps in terms of treatment of supportive care? I presume hydration is step number one, uh, management of the acidosis. What are other things that we should be thinking as clinicians? Well, it should be looking at the uh, metabolic abnormalities, uh, obviously obtain, uh, obtaining a serum bicarbonate administration of sodium bicarbonate. Um, at one to two milliequivalents per kilogram initially um, should be considered, of course, uh, from miprazole, um, which prevents formation of the toxic metabolites, uh, should be considered. Um, essentially, it's administered as 15 milligrams per kilogram loading dose, followed by four bolus doses of 10 milligrams per kilogram every 12 hours. That That is uh, FDA approved for both ethylene glycol and um, methanol. And then um, dialysis is a definitive treatment. 
for patients poisoned by toxic alcohols as it clears both the parent compound and toxic metabolites from the blood. It can also correct the metabolic acidosis, electrolyte abnormality while maintaining the fluid balance um, in, in this sense. And so that, those are the primary treatments. There's adjunctive treatments, for example, uh, folates for uh, methanol and thiamine, uh, 100 milligrams intravenously daily for thiamine for ethylene glycol along with pyridoxine, about 100 milligrams intravenous daily. Um, to allow the adequate stores of the uh, cofactor needed to convert some of the toxic metabolites to non-toxic metabolites. And I think that historically, um, when Fomepisol was not widely available or in hospitals that did not have Fomepisol, a lot of people uh, talked about ethanol infusions. Is there any role for that today? Or we just, I mean, really no. focus? Okay, so that's really something of the past that is not really considered to be standard of care at this point. Correct. And yeah, ethanol should it, it should be confined to the history books with because thimerosal really does not have much in the way of uh, toxicity associated with it. And is there a a role for using? So a lot of times, some episode might be used early on, and the idea is that if instituted in, in a time sensitive manner, it might even prevent the need for dialysis. But there's still patients who obviously who will develop the renal failure or other indications for dialysis. Is there a role for using Fomepisol in patients who are getting dialysis? Yes, um, they should be used concurrently, uh, Fomepisol and uh, hemodialysis, um, essentially. Um, the dose may have to be adjusted uh, for Fomepisol. Um, if, for example, um, it is removed by hemodialysis, so you may need to repeat the dose after each round of dialysis. Okay. And I think this is an important point because, I mean, some people might think it's one, one or the other. And the, the reality is that, as you mentioned, I mean, they're, they're meant to be concurrent and probably are synergistics, but they might, it might require adjustment of the dosing. So in terms of making it simple for our, from our clinicians, uh, Jerry, um, anybody who you have a strong suspicion, high osmolar gap, strong suspicion of either ethylene glycol or methanol toxicity, who ha who's clinically has signs of toxicity, should probably get Fomepisol, right? Yes, uh, that should be considered. There should be a, a low threshold for giving it since there's uh, very little toxicity associated with Fomepisol. Certainly, if the serumethylene glycol concentration is over 20 milligrams per deciliter or metabolic acidosis, or even a history of potentially toxic ingestion, um, in the in the sense, that's when uh, this should be considered. And in terms of pulling the trigger for dialysis, can you give us any guidelines, general guidelines of what would be considered, I mean, indications? Well, um, metabolic acidosis, um, in the sense, certainly a pH under 7.2. If there's no response to therapy, if there's already some renal insufficiency noted, if your uh, ethylene glycol uh, concentration, for example, is more than 50, um, 50 milligrams per deciliter, um, in the sense. If there's a vital sign deterioration, uh, despite the uh, advent of supportive care, um, if the electrolyte abnormalities are severe and not responding to conventional therapy. Um, hemodialysis uh, can be considered and may require multiple sessions. Okay. And, uh, and how long would you get the fomepisol? Uh, usually about 48 hours. Okay. So I think that uh, clearly, I mean, the, the key here is really in identifying these substances early on and instituting fomepisol and dialysis when needed 
in a time-sensitive manner, but these are obviously things that would happen in the purview of the intensive care unit, since these patients probably would, would have been admitted at that point to, to the ICU. So I think it's very important to, to keep in mind. Now, we, we, we didn't mention a propylene glycol, which is not something that is usually found by itself, but any comments on how this can ca cause toxicity since we're talking about alcohol? Certainly. Propylene glycol um, has been uh, essentially a substitute um, for uh, various uh, ethylene glycols or, or things like that. It is also has been used uh, as a adjunct in certain types of um, uh, medications. Um, and so um, it's it's basically, uh, I'm not going to say it's non-toxic. It, um, it has toxicity in itself um, overall. It can, there can be some cardiac issues, some cardiac arrhythmias, for example, associated with propylene glycol, um, especially if it's uh, given at very large doses or if there's a large ingestion. So there is some, uh, some degree of uh, um, cardiac instability associated with it that we have seen. Um, having said that, um, there's also some very various substances that it can cause, um, or it can cause some degree of metabolic abnormalities. But one does not really see it as much um, with this. It's, I mean, it, it is now a major ingredient of antifreeze and de-icing uh, fluids, but it's also found in various cosmetics, liquid detergents, and the like. Um, overall, in general, it's far less toxic than ethylene glycol. But at very high doses, one can get acidotic because it can be metabolized to lactic acid. I see. So really not, a, not, not as frequent. And I think that um, we didn't obviously talk about it. And I think that we have to go to details. But uh, just, I guess, a, a reminder that probably the, the biggest cause of death uh, is ethanol and just the consumption of alcohol socially in the terms of not only intoxications, but probably the effects of driving under the influence, which is another, another healthcare discussion. But for somebody who comes intoxicated with ethanol, other than supportive care, protecting the airway, IV fluids, anything you would recommend? Well, um, acidosis can occur at very high ethanol levels. Um, in this sense, but of course, the major aspect is a CNS or central nervous system depression. Um, and so from that aspect, um, ethanol follows a very predictable pharmacokinetics um, in the sense that uh, uh, the metabolism is about 10 to 30 milligrams per deciliter per hour. So oftentimes, as far as the acute effects go, um, all one has to do is pretty much ride it out, so to speak, with supportive care. Yes, dialysis does remove ethanol, but very rarely is it required. And probably the risk would, would outweigh the benefits of just waiting and supporting the patient, right? Just the Correct. risk of putting the catheter in. Perfect. So why don't we move on to our second uh, category of drugs, which is analgesics. And I would like to start with uh, acetaminophen or Tylenol, which I think is uh, an important cause, obviously, of acute liver failure, but uh, is also something I think that we commonly encounter in the uh, in our clinical practices, is somebody who took a large dose, uh, or somebody who might we might not even recognize that took a large dose, but can cause problems. And how does I mean acetaminophen cause toxicity, and what should we be looking for initially, Jerry? 
Well, similar to ethylene glycol and methanol, acetaminophen causes its toxicity through its metabolite, uh, which is called NAPQI, which damages the liver architecture. And especially with glutathione depletion, um, liver failure can occur. It usually can occur um, with severe toxicity, and we're talking in acute ingestions over 150 milligrams per kilogram. Um, at that dose, the metabolic pathways are overwhelmed, and it's metabolized to the reactive metabolite. Um, and it can be detoxified with uh, glutathione substances uh, or base glutathione base substances, which in the case in the United States is N-acetylcysteine. And in terms of, uh, of, of clinical findings, uh, anything that we should, we, should, we, should, we should worry about, I think one of the things that has struck me when caring for people who have very bad outcomes is that the initial presentation might be very mild. And I think that people who are not aware with the natural history might uh, really under, underestimate the severity of the situation. Yes, there is a lag time. Um, there are stages um, where uh, toxicity can is concerned in the first 12 hours, uh, patients may appear to be, you know, relatively well. Um, they may have some mild nausea and vomiting that is almost always see, seen along with some uh, right upper quadrant tenderness. But the severe cases uh, may not show itself until 12 to 20 hours or so after ingestion. And so um, as far as the treatment goes, high degree of suspicion um, has to occur. I have seen several cases of adolescents that were called gastroenteritis that turned out to be acetaminophen poisoning. And so a high degree of suspicion should be in, uh, done in these kinds of And what, what is the, the, the maybe historical findings in terms of the quantity that should alert you as this could potentially be a problem I should investigate more? Yes, uh, we're concerned with doses of uh, acute doses of 150 milligrams per kilogram of acetaminophen, um, probably need in, in children um, at least 200 milligrams per kilogram under six years old. But so any doses uh, in that range, to any, any uh, if you don't know milligrams per kilogram, anything over seven and a half or 10 grams, uh, acute ingestion should uh, be considered to be toxic. Okay, and uh, can you tell us a little bit about once you suspect a significant ingestion, what will be the next steps in terms of laboratory and getting ready to treat that patient? Well, as far as the laboratory, um, once you get, obviously, the serum acetaminophen level, um, liver enzymes, serum electrolytes, um, along with renal function tests, INR um, should also be obtained, along with a complete blood count, particularly looking at the platelet count um, overall. And the INR is highly important to look at essentially in the other aspect regarding liver function. Um, the acetaminophen level is only good as far as predictive for um, using the nomogram, what's called the Rumic Matthew nomogram, if it's an acute one-time ingestion. So it's, it is no good for a chronic ingestion. However, I believe that it is uh, helpful um, as far as determining, um, the, as far as determining uh, the presence of problems or potential problems with chronic exposure. So I would get an acetaminophen level no matter what. And and I think that if you know that the ingestion occurred, let's say within the last four hours, that's the sweet spot for the normal for the rumic uh, Matthew normogram, correct? Correct. Um, it usually starts at four hours, 
and then the half-life is four hours in acetaminophen overdose. And so um, levels over serum levels over 150 milligrams per liter should be thought of as potentially toxic and acute ingestions at four hours. And in terms of, uh, uh, before we get into how you would use it, uh, uh, use the normal gram very, very simply, uh, what would you do in patients who you don't know the time or are chronic ingestors and you suspect toxicity? That can be quite a bit uh, more problematic. Certainly, if your liver enzymes are elevated, usually um, SGOT uh, higher than SGPT. So if your liver enzymes are elevated, uh, you show, or a patient has symptoms such as nausea and vomiting that may be kind of nebulous after a chronic acetaminophen use, um, th those should be suspicious uh, for acetaminophen toxicity and uh, consideration of N-acetylcysteine should be given. And in terms of just using the normogram to make it very simple, it's, it's called the uh, uh, RUMAC, R-U-M-A-C-K, Matthew normogram. I believe it was uh, d developed by pediatricians, but it's, I'm sure, widely available in emergency departments and in textbooks and online. And the idea is that if you knew when the ingestion was, you, uh, you would just plot the hours versus the level you have. And if your level is above the, the, the possible hepatic toxicity, it's a, it's, a, it's a green light to go ahead and treat, correct? Correct. It is very useful for acute ingestions. It is not useful for chronic ingestions or not predictive. It's also not, uh, it's less useful for the extended release ingestions. So the acetaminophen that's extended release. And I think that the other point that's always something that comes up, I mean, clinically, is that when in doubt, I think the treatment probably benefits outweigh the risk of, of giving treatment. Is that correct? Yes. I believe that early institution of N-acetylcysteine uh, will be prudent in most cases. In fact, um, I often use it for virtually any type of chemical-induced acute liver insufficiency um, in this way. And so we're using N-acetylcysteine for quite a few other things uh, that can cause liver, such as hepatic ischemia, which is not really chemically induced. Um, I've used it for hyperthermia, for gold-induced, for example, liver insufficiency, and other types of chemical-induced uh, liver insufficiency. It's been shown to be somewhat effective for some of the herbal products, such as germander uh, uh, liver insufficiency. So, so cysteine may be quite useful at the protocol given for acetaminophen overdose for several types of acute uh, liver failure that for the most part is chemically induced or ischemic produced. Can we, uh, and I think that's an important point because a lot of times you might not have confirmation, but under the suspicion of another chemical inducing liver toxicity, it definitely, I mean, it can be a, a tool to be utilized. And I would imagine that as we discussed earlier, if we call the poison center, they probably would recommend that based on the clinical findings. Can I would we agree. Can, can we dive a little yeah. bit more into the protocol itself? So historically, obviously, N-acetylcysteine was initially given mostly PO and talk about that protocol and what are the pros and cons. And more recently in the last years, it's available IV, which is usually the preference, I think, for a lot of ICU clinicians. But can we talk about both of those and how you would give them? Sure. Um, back in the day, so to speak, it was given almost exclusively orally. Um, at 140 milligrams per kilogram loading dose, followed by 70 milligrams per kilogram every four hours. The FDA-approved protocol was 72 hours, so that's about 17 maintenance doses. However, 
Um, the problem was that people would be throwing up and it'd be hard to keep it down and giving uh, antiemetics was often not very effective. So the intravenous protocol was developed and FDA approved back around 2004. Um, overall, it's uh, considered to be 150 milligrams per kilogram infusion over 60 minutes, followed by 50 milligrams per kilogram infusion over four hours, followed by 6.25 milligrams per kilogram per hour uh, infusion um, overall, or about 100 milligrams per kilogram uh, over a total of 16 hours. Um, and then if the liver enzymes are still going up, we give another 16-hour infusion after that. Um, so basically, it is a, kind of a three-bag protocol, so to speak, and we continue it until the acetaminophen concentration is not detectable, uh, when, when the uh, hepatic uh, enzymes are improving, and the other prognostic markers, such as pH, lactate, INR, and the like, are improving. So in terms of uh, a, of the oral, if somebody was still to use it, I think an important point is that if they were to vomit the uh, uh, the dose within an hour administration, you should consider that dose not given and repeat it, right? Correct. We would repeat the dose. Um, I would also consider for continuing vomiting switch with the intravenous protocol. Okay. And for the intravenous, what is the, the danger of the intravenous administration? The danger have been allergic reactions associated with it. Anaphylactoid reactions have been associated less than 1% of the time, but it has occurred. Oftentimes, one gets a skin rash, uh, bronchospasm, particularly in patients with asthma, may occur. Those are pretty much treated symptomatically. Um, and so from that aspect, um, it is relatively safe although uh, adverse effects have occurred. And I think an important point, which uh, I think uh, is to be emphasized, especially in cases that are very severe, you would treat these reactions symptomatically, but you would continue the infusion of N-acetylcysteine, correct? Correct, except in the anaphylactoid instances, for the most part, uh, the N-acetylcysteine antidote is given. Okay. And in terms of, uh, you, you mentioned that you, you, you usually give the first bag as a loading dose, the 16-hour infusion as a second bag. And at that point, if you are uh, done with undetectable levels and liver enzymes going down, you, you probably can stop, which would probably be a very mild, a mild intoxication case. But if things are still not in the direction you want them, you would give an additional 16-hour infusion, correct? Yes, an additional 16-hour infusion is usually given if uh, the symptoms are not resolving to our satisfaction. And at the, after that second 16-hour infusion, so we're now at 32-plus hours, if you're still having head in the right direction, would you give it a third dose? I have done that, okay. yes. I've given uh, doses um, as much as uh, three or four of these 16-hour uh, infusions um, after the initial dose. And I think another aspect of, of treating these toxicities, uh, Jerry, is that this is actually a cause of irreversible acute liver failure, and uh, it is an indication at one point for transplantation. And there are patients who, without a transplant, might not survive. Uh, do you have any, any comments on for, for, for clinicians in hospitals where they don't have liver transplant, at one point you might consider this patient is not moving in the right direction, or what are some of the signs that might tell you I probably should transfer this patient for further evaluation? Certainly. Um, and it, 
there have been some various criteria have been used for transfer. What I use for transfer um, is that if they're developed in acidosis, renal insufficiency, encephalopathy, um, hepatic encephalopathy, evidence of liver failure, INR greater than uh, 1.5, um, those are some considerations regarding the e liver enzyme levels. I believe that the liver enzyme levels are over a thousand and rising um, it, overall, that that a consideration should be given uh, to send to a uh, liver specialist or transplant center. Um, so an SGOT over a thousand and rising. Oftentimes in these situations, um, they're doubling within four to eight hours as far as transaminases go. So these are really dramatic, I mean, cases, I mean, in extremes, and I think it's something that people should definitely take into consideration because, like you said, when they first present, they might not appear to be as uh, as critical, but uh, things can turn very quickly. Yes, I would, I would also add that if they're hypotensive. Is there any other aspects of treatment that you think are worth mentioning before we move on to another Well, substance? hemodialysis has been used uh, in massive ingestions because it does clear out the acetaminophen, but it's not used r routinely because acetylcysteine is so effective as an antidote, especially when given within 10 hours. So if given early, really, I mean, that is uh, the, the way to go, and, and very rarely would you require dialysis, but it's something that I've never utilized, but I guess, I mean, in very extreme cases, it might, it might be something that is recommended. So if your poison center says, I would consider dialysis, don't think that this is something that has not been described before, correct? Correct. And as I said, um, N-acetylcysteine has been used for other types of hepatotoxins, such as carbon tetrachloride, hepatotoxic mushrooms, group one mushrooms, Amanita phylloides, halothane-induced uh, liver problems, uh, pennyroyal oil, even iron overdose it has been used for. And I think that's a very valuable pearl, I think, that for the audience that not only for acetaminophen liver toxicity, but for many other chemically induced hepatotoxicities, it, it, it is effective and can be utilized. Yes. So, so the next agent I wanted to talk about or potential toxin is opioids, which obviously in terms of what's going on in healthcare have become a tremendous uh, problem and truly an epidemic of opioid addiction, I think, has increased significantly the number of opioid-induced deaths and opioid-induced, I mean, intoxications that our clinicians might see. Uh, uh, why don't we start by just giving us a, a general overview of what's going on uh, with the opioid ep ep epidemic? Well, we're sort of in the third stage of the opioid epidemic. That is that we're seeing um, quite a few street drug contamination of the synthetics involving synthetic opioids, uh, such as fentanyl and, and, and its derivatives. Um, and that is accounting for the massive increase in deaths that we are seeing. Um, the first stage was uh, primarily a prescription drug stage um, over, overall. Um, the second stage was a street drug, and now we're seeing the synthetic aspect of the street drug. Um, and so um, what, what we're seeing is uh, essentially a fentanyl epidemic. And uh, of course, um, the treatment has been on paper pretty simple, naloxone, which is the opioid mu antagonist um, overall. However, um, one needs very large doses for these to overcome fentanyl and other types of synthetic uh, opioid uh, intoxications and poisoning, essentially. So one needs doses uh, significantly over two milligrams in these individuals. 
And I think that this is something that we talked about in the previous episode, which I think is worth reiterating, because I often will see people come in with a toxidrome and maybe the history that is very consistent with an opioid overdose, and they will give a very small dose of naloxone, no effect, and they stop. And I think that, as you mentioned, Jerry, there is a higher prevalence today of fentanyl, synthetic fentanyl, being part of these intoxications, and these would require much, much higher doses. So could you just reiterate, I mean, how would you would approach in terms of dosing these patients? Yes, I would uh, repeat the doses every few minutes um, of naloxone. Um, if there is uh, some small degree of response, or even if there's no response, um, in individuals suspected of an opioid overdose. Um, and so I would give, and then literally double the dose, two, four, eight milligrams, and even over 10 or 16 milligrams in that ballpark um, before I considered it to be a naloxone failure. Um, oftentimes, uh, these individuals, as I mentioned last time, may take other substances that are contaminated, not only the fentanyl, um, with what they think is heroin, but other substances, I mentioned diphenhydramine. Quetiapine is also something I've seen quite a bit contaminated uh, with our heroin. So all these, all these substances don't respond to naloxone in a very favorable manner. That is at the usual dose of 0.2 to 2 milligrams IV. They may need much higher doses. And some of these substances, such as diphenhydramine and quetiapine, don't really respond to naloxone. And it would seem to me that uh, with the appropriate interventions in a timely manner, uh, most of these patients should not die. But the problem is that they sustain severe hypoxemia before they get to us and go into cardiac arrest and have then severe anoxic brain damage, or they are basically found uh, too late. Is that correct? That's correct. The irony is, is that uh, it's been shown that uh, there have been increased amount of uh, transplant patients uh, that these individuals uh, have don donated organs in terms of transplant uh, because of the hypoxic, it's primarily related to the brain damage per se, and to less uh, resistant or more resistant organs to hypoxia, such as liver and kidney and heart, as compared to brain, um, have been transplanted from these individuals. Yeah, and I think that every clinician who's listening to this podcast will probably have a case of a young uh, patient who had an opioid overdose, who made it to the hospital, was maybe resuscitated, intubated, but never woke up and then died because of anoxic brain injury. So clearly, I mean, uh, once uh, you intervene, it's uh, they're very salvageable. The problem is that a lot of these patients get to us uh, too late. Any other aspects of treatment uh, other than supportive care and understanding that with the increase in synthetic opioids, we need higher doses of naloxone that you would want to comment on, Jerry? Well, um, basically supportive care is the key to these aspects that the, that the long-term or the long longer toxicity takes, the more... Um, other substances or contaminants should be thought of. For example, heroin, if it was pure heroin, that would last for maybe a few hours, uh, certainly less than six hours as far as the comatose aspect. But if a patient remains comatose for you know days, literally, one has to think of other substances that have occurred or as a contaminant with the heroin. And the, one of the major sequelae is ARDS, acute lung injury, which can develop in uh, some proportion of these individuals suffering an acute opioid overdose.
And I think that the other the other question I had for you is just any any recommendations of the use of a naloxone drip. I usually my practice is to whatever effective dose I had to use either a half to a third of, uh, to two thirds of that on an hourly basis. Is that usually what you would recommend? Yes, it's about two thirds uh, per hour, and this is really uh, maybe necessary if a long acting opioid is taken, like methadone, for example. Um, duration of effect of uh, of naloxone in itself, one one injection is maybe about an hour, hour and a half, and so uh, patients uh, who have ingested the long-acting uh, opioids, such as methadone, um, may require this naloxone drip, and it is, as you say, about two-thirds of the dose that was effective for the initial reversal given per hour. Excellent. So I think that we can move on to our um, last. Um a drug in this analgesic category, which is salicylates, which I think is always very interesting uh, from a board perspective because of the interesting acid-base disorders. But why don't you tell us, I mean, uh, Jerry, when do you suspect a salicylate intoxication and uh, what, what would be the next steps in evaluating it? Well, first of all, um, you brought up an interesting aspect regarding uh, the acid-bases uh, disorders because Salicylates can occur with just about, uh, can cause almost any type of acid-base disorder or mixed acid, acid disorder other than, other than a metabolic alkalosis. If one has a pure metabolic alkalosis, that's probably the one thing salicylates uh, don't, uh, that does not develop from salicylate poisoning. But just about every, everything else. Um, in a sense, in terms of acid base, uh, one uh, can initially, the, the biggest presenting sign of acute salicylate overdose that one can see right away is tinnitus or hard of hearing. If a person is hard of hearing and they may have a little bit of a respiratory alkalosis or maybe have an increased uh, respiratory rate and some GI upset, that could be very serious. That could be a clue to very serious um, salicylate poisoning. So in, in almost all the cases of bad salicylate poisoning, hard of hearing is a major presenting sign. And in terms of a workup from a diagnostic standpoint, what are the labs that you would order? Okay, well, I would order um, the usual labs as far as basic metabolic profile, uh, INR, CBC. Uh, also, one other aspect are liver function tests uh, or renal tests. Um, UA is important to look uh, because one may have to uh, alkalinize the urine to a pH of 7.5 or greater. So looking at the urine pH is somewhat important and salicylate. And um, one should obtain these uh, levels, specifically the basic metabolic profile and the serum salicylate level um, serially, probably every few hours um, until the salicylate levels are going down. And in terms of treatment, I think that you mentioned, obviously, always supportive care. So taking care of the airway, breathing, support. These patients can develop, I mean, different toxicities in the lung, uh, can have some pulmonary edema. Uh, but these patients also are usually volume uh, depleted. So starting with IV fluids is important. Um, when is dialysis part of the picture? Well, um, first of all, decontamination can be important. If they come in within a few hours, um, activated charcoal at one gram per kilogram can uh, help improve the outcome uh, quite a bit. Um, as far as uh, we do alkaline, alkaline diuresis, urine alkalinization increases uh, the increase uh, is the elimination of salicylates. 
Um, and so trying to get the urine pH to about 7.5 to 8. Hemodialysis does efficiently remove the salicylate and it can improve the acid base and electrolyte disorders in this sense. So we give it with high salicylate levels, um, usually over 80 milligrams per deciliter after an acute ingestion, be over 50 milligrams per deciliter with chronic ingestions. If the acidosis does not really respond very well, um, if there's uh, a problem with the urine output or renal toxicity, uh, evidence of central nervous system toxicity, such as seizures or coma uh, or confusion, um, in the sense of the, if the, uh, the clinical, uh, all the clinical aspects deteriorate, uh, you know, with INR, liver insufficiency, renal insufficiency, acute lung injury, um, if you cannot alkalinize the urine very well due to inability of sodium bicarbonate to be given, um, in the sense. So these are some of the indications for salicylate. Uh, uh, ingestion and hemodialysis use. And I think that uh, just an important reminder for, for our listeners is that really these patients can get quite ill, have I mean, high morbidity and mortality, and really we shouldn't delay probably instituting dialysis in patients who are getting sicker very quickly and have a low threshold with these um, uh, indicators that you mentioned to initiate dialysis as soon as possible because it does take care of the levels and can turn around things pretty quickly, correct? Correct, and also have a low threshold for getting a salicylate level um, overall because it can uh, look like a gastroenteritis. Um, it can also, I've seen it look uh, or mimic to a certain extent diabetic ketoacidosis um, overall where the, it does increase the blood sugar. Uh, you may not have the ketones, but uh, if one gets a salicylate in, in that aspect, um, one may see quite a bit of salicylate toxicity in the DKA type of uh, patients. Excellent. And I think that as we continue the discussion, I mean, two of the specific levels that you had mentioned in our previous episode that are always useful to obtain when you have a, a constellation of symptoms that might indicate a intoxication are the acetaminophen and the salicylate because when elevated, they're very telling of what's going on. It can be very helpful in di directing management. Um, getting the salicylate or acetaminophen levels can be key in those patients. Absolutely. So I guess the, the next big category is the cardiovascular drugs. And again, I think just by the, the nature of the number of prescriptions that are written every year for beta blockers and calcium channel blockers, these are common uh, causes of toxicity. And I think that uh, there's not one ED or ICU who doesn't deal with these patients on a, on a yearly basis. I guess we could talk about them uh, in a big lump together because they're very similar, but there might be some differences. Uh, why don't we just talk by giving us an overview of beta blocker and calcium channel blockers causing serious adverse events from toxicity? Yes, beta blockers are causing bradycardia and hypotension, uh, although uh, other aspects can occur uh, with it. For example, propranolol can cause seizures, it can cause QRS widening uh, that can result in ventricular dysrhythmias. Hypoglycemia can develop in kids who've taken too much uh, of the beta blocker. So other aspects can occur um, with it besides the hypotension and bradycardia. Uh, bronchospasm can also develop uh, in some of these individuals. The onset is usually within six hours, um, especially with uh, beta blockers. 
um, overall. But uh, and calcium channel blockers, it's usually within eight hours. So I think that from a clinical perspective, what we usually will see is obviously a hypotension, bradycardia, and uh, it's usually something that we can identify by history taking. Either the patient was on these medications or took these medications. A lot of times they're, they're, they're accidental overdoses. Other times it might be an intentional overdose. But uh, in terms of, uh, of treatment, what are the first interventions that, uh, that you would institute? And can you give us specific comments about the role and efficacy of atropine? Well, um, essentially decontamination, if seen within an hour or two, uh, should be considered in both cases, um, beta blockers and calcium channel blockers. Um, standard ACLS treatment uh, regarding bradycardia and hypotension uh, can be considered in, in both cases. Um, and so uh, that is, that's probably one of the major aspects. Atropine has, will have some uh, positive effect, particularly for the beta blockers, probably more so than for the calcium channel blockers. Um, overall. But um, hypotension is treated in the usual way with fluids. Calcium infusions have been given for the calcium channel blockers. Usually the response is very transient. And so um, that aspect, uh, you know, can be quite useful, but uh, only as a transient measure. Uh, vasopressors in, in the traditional manner, epinephrine, vasopressin even, phenylephrine, um, uh, can occasionally be effective. They usually, patients usually don't respond to the dopamine or norepinephrine. Um, what we've been using, and particularly in calcium channel blockers, is uh, high-dose insulin, one unit per kilogram of insulin, followed by infusion of 0.1 to one unit per kilogram per hour. Um, titrate to the blood pressure of about 90 to 100 millimeters uh, mercury. Bradycardia usually does not respond to that um, overall. Um, also, glucagon. Uh, can be very good for beta blocker and um, calcium channel blocker. Overdose initially three to five milligrams IV over about a minute or two. And you can repeat a dose um, up to four to 10 milligrams. Um, and so that, that can be quite effective. And uh, what we talked about last time, particularly with the uh, calcium channel blockers, uh, lipid emulsion has been used successfully in a few clinical settings where hypotension was refractory. So I think that just to summarize, I think this is valuable. Obviously, we start with fluids. Atropine, I mean, it can be utilized, but it's usually not as effective. And I think that one of the, the tenets that I have always uh, kept is that my main target is the hypotension, not the bradycardia. And I really try to right. keep the blood pressure perfusion. If the perfusion pressure is good, the heart rate becomes less relevant. And uh, it, there is also a significant amount of vasodilation that's going on and other reasons why the patient is very hypotensive, not only the bradycardia. Uh, use the pressors, as you mentioned. And then uh, glucagon, effective for both, but much more effective for beta blockers, correct? Yes. Um, glucagon is effective for, especially in individuals that respond to the uh, fluid therapy. And insulin therapy, is that more effective for calcium channel blockers? Yes, but it is uh, potentially effective for beta blockers too. So you would use both. And then the lipid emulsion, as you mentioned, also has been utilized in calcium channel blocker toxicities. Can that be utilized also for, for beta blockers? Yes, it has been used for beta, 
beta blockers, especially the lipid-soluble beta receptor antagonists. And I think that uh, the other interventions that are more heroic but have been utilized are uh, transvenous pacing. Transcutaneous pacing is not usually as effective but can be utilized short-term. And even some cases have described patients being put on on ECMO for support that are, that arrest it while these drugs are, are metabolized. But those are usually uh, much more rare. And I think that with the interventions that you mentioned, usually most of these patients uh, can be taken care of in the ICU. Yes, uh, hemodialysis has been used for beta blockers with uh, relatively limited volumes of distribution, such as atenolol, sotalol, and natalol. So that could also be, I think, a potential therapy that to keep in mind. And I think that's why it's always important to get as much information as possible, but also to be in an ongoing conversation with our, with our poison center, as we mentioned in the first episode. That's correct. The, the, the last uh, cardiovascular drug that I wanted to ask you, I think uh, it obviously has a lot of historical relevance, but I think it's still something that is utilized and we still might encounter, although least frequently, is digoxin toxicity. Yes, uh, we, we still encounter this quite frequently. Um, and uh, as far as digoxin and the cardioglycosides um, in general, um, basically uh, we still see cardioglycosides. It's a naturally occurring toxin, uh, so to speak. It's still um, in certain plants such as uh, foxglove and, and the like. Um, but uh, the most common reason, uh, the most common toxicities are usually with digoxin. And in terms of, uh, of recognizing uh, digoxin toxicity, you can get a digoxin level. Uh, but you had mentioned to us earlier that there are some arrhythmias that should make you think this is possible to digoxin toxicity. Any comments on how the EKG might help you? Yes, bidirectional uh, ventricular tachycardia um, may uh, be somewhat diagnostic for it. Um, in the sense, um, it, the thing about digoxin is that it can almost cause any kind of arrhythmia, per se, uh, especially the AV blocks, uh, dysrhythmias. And so any, almost any kind of heart blocks uh, due to the increased vagal tone uh, and decreased sympathetic tones uh, can occur. So, uh, and especially if you have these heart blocks in association with marked hyperkalemia, that should be a clue that a cardiac glycoside is involved. And in terms of electrolyte management, obviously potassium is going to be a key a key element for these digoxin toxicities and making sure that the digoxin is within normal is going to be critical, right? Correct. And the only way to remove uh, the potassium um, is really either through dialysis, which is not often used for this because it does not increase it in clearance of digoxin. Uh, but as far as uh, the cardiac glycoside uh, poisoning, the Jackson immune FAB fragments or the Jackson immune antibody fragments, which can rapidly reverse the uh, cardiac arrhythmic effect of these glycosides, but it also can reverse the hyperkalemia. And what about DigiBind? I have never utilized it. I, I have had patients who we almost utilize it, but have never really pulled the trigger. Uh, what are the thoughts? I mean, obviously, there's very dramatic stories of the first time Digibine was utilized. Uh, but um, what are your recommendations today for, for use, utilizing that therapy? Well, as mentioned, if you have elevated potassium over 5 milliequivalents per liter in acute overdoses, if you have a progressive uh, bradyarrhythmia, if you have a second or third degree heart block, for example, if your hypotension is refractory um, in a sense, um, if you have uh, 
uh, ingestion over 10 milligrams in adults or four, over four milligrams in a child, or if you have a serum digoxin uh, concentration greater than 10 nanograms per milliliter, uh, after six hours of ingestion, if you have a lack of response or a poor response to other types of conventional ACLS type of therapy, that's where uh, digoxin immune FAB fragments can be considered. Any other comments on the cardiovascular drugs that you want to share with us, Jerry, before we move on to our last category of drugs? Um, not really. For the most part, um, they're supportive, supportive care. Um, the local anesthetics can cause uh, a variety of uh, cardiac arrhythmias that can be resistant to traditional uh, ACLS therapy, and so that's where the lipid emulsion therapy can be quite useful. Excellent. And finally, the last category of drugs that I wanted to touch on was the psychotropic drugs, and start with the, the cyclic antidepressants, which have decreased in the number of prescriptions, but historically have been, uh, I think, a high likelihood of causing mortality in intoxications in, in the ICU, and I think it's still important to recognize and treat them appropriately. Yes, uh, fortunately we're seeing fewer and fewer of the tricyclic depressant overdoses, which used to be one of the major causes of death uh, due to poisonings in the United States, especially with suicidal intent. Um, we still see, see it on occasion um, overall, and uh, it's treatment um, can be quite complicated because there is no specific antidote per se, um, and one cannot really get blood levels per se of these substances. So one has to deal uh, with diagnosing this either by history, uh, physical exam, which can be limited, or uh, any laboratory testing, which the EKG comes in. And what would be the profile of a patient uh, other than the history that would you make you suspect? So I guess when I, when I see altered mental status, in somebody young with a abnormal EKG, widened QRS and arrhythmias, that's when I start thinking, could this be a toxicity and could uh, tricyclics be involved? Well, most of tricyclics have some anticholinergic properties. So dilated pupils can be seen, drowsiness, uh, difficulty to arouse, um, hallucinations, tachycardia is often very commonly seen uh, with uh, uh, and as far as early onset and eventually progressing to coma and seizures uh, with QRS prolongation and hypotension. So, uh, but oftentimes uh, e these patients will demonstrate some anticholinergic effects. Um, so uh, decreased bowel sounds is also um, may, may be evident along with respiratory depression. And uh, in terms of uh, evaluation, so you suspect this, like you said, you can't really uh, get a specific level but um, clearly getting the usual lab is going to be important, and then an EKG is critical. And can you tell us how you use the EKG to direct your treatment? Certainly. Um, the, e the EKG is critical. Um, QRS prolongation um, is one of the key signs uh, for, uh, as far as laboratory monitoring. A, a QRS prolongation over 0 0.10 uh, is suggestive. Uh, if a person doesn't have a history of a bundle branch block, if it's over uh, QRS widening over um, 0.12, that uh, can be quite um, quite a diagnostic um, overall. Oftentimes, there is uh, additionally uh, QTC prolongation over 500 milliseconds. Um, and so um, if 
one has QRS prolongation, QTC prolongation, ventricular arrhythmias is a risk. And I think that these patients obviously merit uh, admission to an ICU. And usually the indication traditionally has been to start um, sodium bicarbonate. But uh, there's a lot of experiments I, I've seen very elegant done in animals that suggests that maybe it's not so much the bicarbonate, but the sodium concentration that matters, and perhaps hypertonic saline is an, an alternative. Can you comment on how you would treat these? Well, I do treat with uh, sodium bicarbonate usually and try to attain a serum pH of 7.45 to 7.55. Um, try not to exceed 7.6 as a alkalinization pH. That, that can help decrease the QRS prolongation um, in in this sense, um, by blocking more or less the quinidine type effect. Now, you're right um, uh, regarding uh, hypertonic saline has been used for severe QRS widening. We're talking over 160 milliseconds. That has not been responsive. Um, but that, as of yet, it's primarily uh, in case reports, and there have not been any case series, to my knowledge, on that aspect. So the mainstay would be just to alkalinize uh, uh, the the blood, start the sodium bicarbonate, and monitor the patients aggressively. And uh, and if these patients do develop, I mean, uh, ventricular tachycardias, are they more resistant to normal ACLS treatment? Is there anything else that we should be concerned about or doing? Well, that's where the fat emulsion may come in that has been used uh, in this sense. Ventricular arrhythmias can be managed by the serum alkalinization and then uh, antiarrhythmics. Um, lidocaine is often ineffective, but uh, that can be used. Amiodarone uh, and DC shock um, can be given, but they may be ineffective. Phenytoin used to be used and can be thought of uh, for dysrhythmias that are unresponsive to um, uh, these other measures. Uh, magnesium overdrive uh, pacing uh, can be used for uh, torsades. But lipid emulsion uh, can be considered with refractory dysrhythmias, especially in the view of hypertension. And is there any role for dialysis in, in these toxicities? No, not really. Um, dialysis, these, these individuals um, or these drugs have uh, very large um, volume distributions. They may even have high protein binding. Um, and so dialysis doesn't really uh, affect uh, the elimination. So it's mostly supportive care and treating the underlying potential arrhythmias. Correct. Let's talk a little bit about lithium. Uh, still utilized, I think, in psychiatric uh, treatments. I think what's interesting of lithium, from my perspective, is not only, I mean, the, the, the potential toxicity, but the fact that it can happen in people who are taking chronically lithium and they can come in with toxicity. So it's not only an acute, but also a chronic form. Could you tell us a little bit more about lithium, uh, Jerry, and how do we encounter it today and in, in our practices? Yes, well, of course, the, the major uh, aspect of lithium, major encounter, is with um, therapeutic use for bipolar disorder, um, in a sense. And uh, it's, uh, that is the most common, and it is given chronically. Very rarely do we see an acute lithium overdose in a patient who is not on lithium. Um, in this way. It's also important industrial materials used in batteries and alloys as a such, uh, but that's very uncommonly seen um, overall. It's a, I mean, it is a naturally occurring metal um, in this way. And so for the most part, um, acute poisoning uh, is usually seen in the terms of uh, the drug lithium carbonate um, in a patient that's been taking it chronically. And so we see it's usually considered to be acute and chronic ingestion. 
And are there any specific levels that we should be concerned about that might uh, initiate certain therapeutic contexts? Well, of course, electrolytes, particularly sodium, urine analysis, renal function, sometimes thyroid function because chronic lithium uh, therapy can cause hypothyroidism um, overall. But the major, major thing to get is a serum lithium level and probably a serial uh, lithium levels to look at the trend. Now, um, with lithium, what are the major dangers clinically? What are the, the uh, other than CNS alteration, what are things that we would worry about in our patients? Well, um, if, number one is the cost. For example, if a person has gastroenteritis, that can predispose to lithium poisoning due to dehydration. So one looks for uh, GI signs, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, dehydration. Uh, usually, um, moderate poisoning, severe poisoning will have some degree of nystagmus and tremors along with change in uh, mental status. And that's usually seen uh, more with uh, chronic exposures um, in, in this sense. Um, abnormal temperature imbalance may occur, uh, hyperthermia um, in a sense, on EKG, QTC prolongation can often be seen. Um, uh, hypoventilation can occur in concomitant with central nervous system depression. And in terms of uh, indications uh, for further more aggressive treatment, lithium does have a very small volume of distribution, I understand, and has uh, been uh, treated with dialysis. Could you give us more details on that? Yes, dialysis is one of the uh, definitive treatments because it has a small binding distribution, and this is water-soluble and virtually no protein binding. And so it does increase lithium clearance, decreases the half-life, especially uh, once you consider it um, if an individual taken uh, quite a bit of lithium um, in terms of acute upon chronic. Um, in the sense, if the lithium is greater than five millicolons per liter, probably more than four or increasing, it should be uh, considered. Um, and so, um, and or if there's mental status changes, confusion and the like, uh, one should consider it um, in the sense, um, in the presence of uh, uh, coma or life-threatening dysrhythmias or seizures, maybe even a lithium level slightly below four millicolons per liter, um, one should contact uh, renal for possible dialysis. And the last category in this psychotropic drug uh, bucket would be the selective serotonin reoptic inhibitors, or SSRIs, which are very prevalent and are the main reason why tricyclic antidepressants are, are less common today. What are the concerns that you have with SSRIs? I mean, they're very commonly prescribed. We talked a little bit about the serotonin syndrome last time uh, we spoke, but any any thoughts uh, for our audience on SSRIs? Yes, as, um, as you stated, SSRIs um, actually are uh, some are somewhat uh, safer than tricyclics, uh, which have replaced tricyclic depressants. And actually, tricyclics are somewhat safer than the MAO inhibitors, which it replaced back in the 1970s and 1980s. So. Um, these SSRIs are basically um, can cause uh, some cardiac abnormalities, especially with QTC prolongations, uh, PVCs, premature ventricular contractions can occur. Um, but um, most most of these uh, individuals that take SSRIs will experience only some mild toxicity, uh, some nausea, mild uh, CNS depression, vomiting, shakiness. Uh, some degrees of sinus tachycardia with QTC uh, prolongation can occur, hyperreflexia, 
uh, can occur. So these are things that can be looked at. Anything in terms of specific therapies or suspicion? I mean, usually these are shorter lived and once we stop them and provide supportive care, usually patients do well, correct? Correct, hemodialysis is usually not effective. Um, the uh, lipid uh, motion therapy has been used for certain extraordinarily uh, high, uh, gar almost gargantuan ingestions of SSRIs. Uh, it has been used for uh, bupropion, for example, and uh, quetiapine um, overall, but uh, the treatment for the most part is supportive care, benzodiazepines if seizures occur and the like. There's no specific antidote. Well, I think that, Jerry, as I mentioned uh, at the onset of the episode, we could probably dedicate a, a whole series of podcasts to, to more uh, toxins and, and other treatments, but we, we, we chose to deliberately focus on some of the more common uh, drugs that uh, clinicians might encounter. And uh, I, I wanted to maybe close uh, the podcast at this moment. Uh, and we talked about uh, last time we had some questions for you. Today I have a couple more questions to, to close with a topic not related to toxicology. Uh, would that be okay? Of course. So last time I asked you about a book. Today I wanted to know about your music taste, and it's interesting because you did mention a biography and a, and a genius musician, but if you were in a desert island and could only listen to one album, we're going to go old school here because now it's all digital, right? But uh, let's suppose it's an album. Which one would it be? Well, uh, I mentioned last time that uh, the Hot 5 and Hot 7 with Louis Armstrong um, are something I listen to all the time. But also, um, I think uh, one of the best uh, albums out there, and it's actually uh, on, uh, or, and I see, have it on CD, is uh, The Beatles on BBC, uh, the British Broadcasting uh, Network. And so um, they, they really play uh, um, all their hits and their music on the old BBC program that they used to have. And there are two parts to it. Each each uh, disc has like 25 different songs on it. So it's really incredible. If I had one thing to bring, that would be it. So I'll put that on the show notes. And I think that it's hard to go wrong with the Beatles or jazz. But uh, I think that the uh, enduring uh, popularity of the Beatles it never ceases to impress me. Like uh, my teenage son, I mean, uh, knows the songs, enjoys them. And they've been around for a long time, but there's a reason why people still enjoy them because they're they're very very special. So I'll definitely put that in the show notes, and I think uh, it's a great selection. So the Beatles on the on the BBC. My my last question relates to failure, and I think that we're always very fearful of failure, and I think don't like to talk about our failures. But at the end of the day, I believe that our that failure should be embraced since it's probably one of the best teachers in life. And I would, it was interested to know if you could share with us one of your really good failures, one that really taught you something valuable. Well, um, when I finished my residency, I wanted to do toxicology. And actually, um, there are only very few toxicology programs back in 1984 um, that one could uh, do a fellowship in and get boards in um, overall. And essentially, I uh, failed at... Uh, being uh, admitted into any of those programs um, overall. And uh, at the time, there was no program in Chicago. So I hooked up with uh, Dr. Dan Hiroshak, who was the only medical toxicologist um, in the state of Illinois and a truly great uh, physician um, at Cook County Hospital. And we started our own. 
uh, Toxicology Fellowship back in 1984. And now, 35 years later, we have over 50 fellows that graduated from our program. So I think that it's very interesting how something that initially might have been kind of a downer and you felt like, I mean, was a failure really led to something much more special and much more meaningful for your life. Because not only, I mean, did you get trained, but you have trained, like you said, I mean, a whole host of, uh, of toxicologists that I'm sure have done a lot of good to a lot of patients around the country. Yes, it's uh, very satisfying. And in fact, uh, my family and I always say that we're glad I didn't get in because I might have moved out of Chicago um, in this way. Well, everything happens for a reason, and I think it's what we, we do with things that happen to us that ultimately matters. So I think this is a great place to, to stop. Jerry, again, thank you so much for, for your time, not once but twice in the last uh, couple of weeks. I mean, this uh, two-part toxicology series, I think, uh, has tremendous amount of pearls and uh, very uh, applicable and very uh, useful information for our bedside clinicians. So I look forward to maybe talking about other topics or more toxicology topics with you and the podcast in the future again. And thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. Anytime, please call. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound's transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.